Morning, church. Would you uh, grab your Bibles? If you have them with you, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. This morning, we are carrying on in our series that we've been in for a couple of weeks on the life of David. And we're looking at King David and uh, just the relationships and circumstances that God brings into his life and how God shapes a man through all of these things and what they mean for us. This morning, we are looking at the relationship of David and Jonathan. It's a beautiful relationship in the Bible that is, I hope, going to encourage each one of us this morning. As I said, we'll start in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, and it's sort of the story of chapter 18 all the way to chapter 23. And I'll tell the story and read portions here and there. But as I said this morning, we're going to be looking at their friendship and the gift of friendship to each other that they were and what this means for us today. It's, it's a truly stirring story. And um, just as we look at it, it's, uh, there's a few verses that say and, and help us see the importance of this. David would say that Jonathan was the most important person in his life, the most significant relationship he had, right? Even more, he says, than his wife, which I hope is not the norm. I'm not making a case for bromance over romance, okay? That's not what I'm trying to do today. I'm trying to help us see the power of relationships and friendships. And we'll actually see here the power of this friendship isn't even in David. This guy who we all know in Scripture, this great man of the Bible, the power is actually in a much stronger guy named Jonathan. And the friendship we see in him, it's a beautiful friendship. And my hope this morning is that we'd just be reminded and encouraged and spurred on in this gift of uh, friendship, that God uses spiritual friendships to accomplish His work in our lives. And even as we come to this topic, I think we have to start by recognizing that friendship isn't an easy thing, right? I think um, particularly in the world, maybe yourself or our context, and particularly in the West, we live isolated lives, don't we? We're in a bit of a loneliness epidemic. And COVID didn't help us. We spent months of our lives living isolated lives. And then we kind of had to come out of it. And everyone's like, what do you mean I have to be socially fit? What do you mean I have to go see people? Like we had to relearn what it meant to live in community. And I hope that we are seeing more and more clearly just the beauty of friendship and the, how key it is to our own flourishing. You know, in church, uh, we speak a lot about the miracles of Jesus, the turning water into wine, the feeding the 5,000, uh, the healing people. We don't often talk about the miracle of Jesus having 12 close friends in his 30s. And uh, I think some of us resonate with that because we know how difficult friendships can be. I think if we went around the room, though, in seriousness and we asked each other, who really knows you? Your hopes, your fears, your dreams, your failures, your regrets, the things you're trusting God for. Who really knows you? We may have to admit that not many people really know us. And yet we have this gift of friendship from God to us, to spur us on heavenward. A guy by the name of um, Kent Hughes, Reverend Kent Hughes, he summarizes it like this. Friendships today have fallen on hard times. Few men have good friends, much less deep friendships. Individualism, autonomy, privatization, and isolation are culturally cachet. That's valued. 
but deep, devoted, vulnerable friendship is not. This is a great tragedy for self, for family, and the church because it is in relationships that we develop into what God wants us to do. And so friendship is so important for us as a church. If you're new here, we've got a discipleship circle here. This is what matters to us about what we believe, uh, what we want to see each other become as, as disciples of Jesus. This is what disciple looks like. We've put there as one of the segments, be communal. And what we're saying as a church is that, yes, it's great that we can be friendly people. And on the Sunday, I hope you feel the love. But we're hoping that this friendliness would even go further into developing deep friendships with one another. And so we are praying and trusting God for that. And we've got some way to go as a church, for sure. But what a gift that we get to encourage and spur each other on heavenward in life. This is God's gift to us. So this morning, as I said, we're going to be looking at the relationship of David and Jonathan. And uh, just to give you some context of how today is going to work and how I'm going to uh, structure this thing, uh, the, the relationship and the friendship of David and Jonathan happens in the context of the King Saul trying to kill David. That's what's happening over the, these chapters. King Saul becomes jealous of David. He is uh, again and again and again pursuing him to try kill him because he sees him as a threat. And yet in the midst of all this, you have his friend Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's son, protecting David and loving him and encouraging him and spurring him on. So we're going to, throughout the sermon, sort of contrast Saul and Jonathan, and how they treat David, and what it teaches us about the heart of friendship. That's what I want to talk about if you're writing sermon notes, the heart of friendship. And if you're writing notes, so today I've got five dynamics of spiritual friendship and their enemies. Five dynamics of spiritual friendship and its enemies. And like I said, we'll be kicking off in 1 Samuel chapter 18, just to give us some context 1 Samuel 18 happens just after David has killed Goliath and he uh, gets um, taken before the king uh, Saul and he's literally standing in front of them still, um, still holding Goliath's head. Right, it's a bit of a weird moment. Like, what, what did he do with his hands? Like, it's a bit weird. But he's holding the king's uh, Goliath's head in front of the king. And this is what we read. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. But Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, that's Goliath, the woman came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three-stringed instruments. As they danced, the woman sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Paul was, Saul was furious and resented the song. 
They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. First dynamic at play here. Jonathan commits to David in selfless love, while Saul seeks to use David for selfish gain. Jonathan commits to David in selfless love, while Saul seeks to use David for selfish gain. Let's start with Saul. How does Saul treat David? Well, what we see right there after David has been victorious over Goliath, it says he, he controls him. That's the summary. He didn't let, allow him to go home to see his family. David had just come out uh, with some cheese and some supplies to give to his brothers. Next thing he knows, he's fighting a giant and killing him and taken before the king. And now he's actually, without him ever knowing it, not allowed to return home. And so what's Saul doing in this moment? Right? He's, he's controlling him. He's limiting him. He's squashing him. He's controlling his behavior for selfish purposes. He's keeping him close so he can exert power over this guy. And so he treats David as a servant and even a slave. See, Saul's not interested in what's best for David. He's interested in using David for what's best for him. And some of us, maybe you know what this is like, or you know someone who's in a relationship like this. The text tells us explicitly what is driving Saul. It says there that he's jealous of David. He's envious of him. He wants to keep him close so he can control him and use him for selfish gain. How does Jonathan treat David? There's a completely different dynamic at play here. See, Jonathan commits to David. It says there that Jonathan entered into a covenant relationship with David. Now, whenever you see the word covenant, uh, in our sort of context, we have to distinguish between a contract and a covenant. We like to work in our society, in our lives, uh, on a contractual basis, right? Which says, you keep your end of the deal, and I'll keep my end of the deal. A covenant is that I'm with you, no matter what. No matter what happens, I'm, I've, I've got your back. It's, it's more of a one-sided thing. It's not, de not dependent on the other person keeping their end of the deal. And so Jonathan enters into a covenant with David. He pledges himself to him. For his own blessing and flourishing, he just wants to see David thrive. He makes a decision to support him and care for him and love him and develop him. And it's so important for us to get this. What motivates this partnership? I think, as I've been reading uh, this this week, this is what I think it is. Because if you look back a little bit uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 14, You'll see that Jonathan is a great warrior in his own right. And he's defeated garrisons and armies and, and all of these things. He's a great warrior. And when he says, hey, I'm coming for you, he's not also uh, depending on his own might. He's not boasting in his own strength. When he goes to fight the Philistines as did David, he says, no, the Lord our God is with us and he will defend his people. He puts his hope in God, and that's where his confidence is. And so a bit later, when he sees David do the same thing with Goliath, there's a unity of heart that happens. You see, these guys did not become friends because they're lonely. They did not become friends because they're both looking for love or support. They became friends because they had a mutual burden for God's kingdom and God's name. That's what united their hearts. That's why Jonathan is willing to commit himself to David. He sees God's power 
and anointing on David's life. And he's choosing to get behind that. Right? He, he doesn't want to use David assaulted for his own agenda. He wants to fan into flame God's agenda for David's life. And so this commitment manifests in what? In sacrifice. It's so crucial. You see verse 4? Jonathan gives David his royal armor and his sword. These are, are, are not just uh, small gifts. These are, this is a big thing that's happening here. And what's happening, we need to remember as, jo- as Saul's son, Jonathan would have been next in line to the throne. And in doing this and giving him his royal armor and sword, he's recognizing God's call on David to be the rightful king. See, he's giving up his own right to be king. And he's literally laying it down for the purposes of God's kingdom. She's giving David gifts he could never give back. It's a beautiful thing. But friends, it is so, so costly. This costs Jonathan so much. And I've got to ask us this morning, are we more interested in what we can gain in our relationships or what we can give? Relationships are just so costly. And I think we just have such a comfort idolatry, right? Like we want the support. We want the love. We want the friendship. We want the encouragement. We just don't want it to cost us anything. So we put limits and conditions on our love. What we're seeing here in the example and friendship of Jonathan is that he commits and sacrifices for the good of his mate. Are we willing to get behind what God is doing in each other's lives, even if it requires sacrifice from us? Second dynamic at play here. It's a beautiful one. Jonathan celebrates David's successes, where Saul compares himself to David. Have a look at the victory song, right? So David's just defeated Goliath, and the people come into uh, the town. It says there's a party, there's a victory song, and they're singing the praises of David and Saul. Do you know who they're not singing about? It's Jonathan. Right, this guy was a brilliant warrior. He was no doubt part of this a success and part of what was going on here. But he doesn't get a victory song. And I'm pretty sure, given the heart of this guy that we see throughout these chapters, that he would have been singing along about how great David is. He's willing to celebrate David and his success. What does Saul do on the other hand? What do we see in Saul? He compares himself to David. Or there's that song that says, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has been victorious over tens of thousands. And this makes Saul angry. I mean, look, a thousand is still a lot. Like, that's a lot. He could have just uh, said, thank you, God, for the victory you've given me. Thank you for a thousand. He could have celebrated that in, in its own right. But he can't enjoy his own success because he's busy comparing himself to David the whole time. Listen, I think we know, and what I want us to get in this uh, point here is this. We know that uh, comparison is the thief of joy. We know that comparison kills contentment. What I want us to remember is that comparison also kills companionship. It kills companionship. It's almost impossible to be close to people and to be close to friends when you feel threatened by them. It just kills a bond between you. It breaks something. And that's exactly what we see in Saul, right? A secure leader 
would have celebrated an excellent team member. Here he is, engaging in comparison rather than celebration. Friends, this happens to our hearts so quickly, doesn't it? This happens to our hearts so quickly, and at times you may feel like you just can't help yourself but compare yourself to other people and, and feel jealous of what God's doing in everyone else's life. It just feels like God is just doing amazing things in, in everyone else's life but yours. Maybe you feel like that. And so you may feel the fruit of that disappointment escalating into all kinds of things like bitterness or resentment or jealousy. Maybe you found yourself becoming cynical about people you used to commend. Our hearts can be poisoned and it's usually this um, curse of, of comparison, it, it brings a sickness into our hearts. Are we able to celebrate one another without comparing ourselves? Friends, are we free from comparison and enabled and free to celebrate one another? And thank God, thank you God for what you're doing in their life. A third dynamic we see here. Jonathan makes it his aim to protect David, while Saul abuses David. He seeks to attack him and destroy him. This point's a little bit longer as I unpack some of the story of the chapters that come, so bear with me. But we start off in 1 Samuel 18, the rest of chapter 18, from verse 10 until 30. And what we're reading here is that the king Saul comes under a depression. And um, it manifests, uh, that depression is probably caused by jealousy of David. And it manifests in him trying to kill David. So he, um, David is, is with Saul. He's playing the lyre before him to soothe his dis- de- depression. And Saul flips out and takes the spear and tries to throw it at David's head. Right? He does this twice. And uh, David manages to dodge them both. And um, David's loyalty is such that instead of running away to safety from the king, he actually chooses to stay there and keep serving Saul. And this actually uh, escalates to to Saul completely detesting David. He hates him. So he hatches a plan. And and you tell me if this plan sounds familiar, right? Saul uh, puts David as a commander of an army and puts him on the front line to fight a battle. What's being implied here is that he hopes that David will die in battle. Does that sound familiar? Right, that's exactly what David's going to do. He's going to employ that same tactic with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And we'll, we'll get there in a few weeks' time. But the problem with this plan is that David's too good at what he does. He's a brilliant warrior, and his troops experience unprecedented success. They, they win every battle they face. Of, of course, this just enrages Saul even more so he tries a slightly different tactic. He tries to make him his son-in-law, right? Rather the devil you know, right? So eventually, um, he offers his daughter, Michal, in marriage. Now, this is not against Michal's will. It actually tells us that Michal loved David. So this was a beautiful thing all around and happened to work in Saul's favor, he thought. But he put a condition on this arrangement. He says, you can marry Michal, but you have to bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins. Bit of a strange request. But the reason, again, the reason he asks for this is because he thinks that this is a suicide mission. Out of a hundred battles, surely at least one time David's going to die. Again, what happens? David returns successful with 
200 Philistine foreskins in what has to be the weirdest Lobola negotiation ever. You know, never mind the cows or cash. I've got you what you've always wanted. You know, Mikhail's like, oh, geez, I wanted an air fryer, but thank you. Um, and this makes Saul utterly furious. He gets so angry. And we see where this leads us. We're going to pick up the story again. 1 Samuel chapter 19 from verse 1. He says, Saul then ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. But Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. So he told him, my father Saul intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are and talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. So Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine Goliath. And, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul and he served him as he did before. When war broke out again, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them with such great force that they fled from him. Now an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his palace holding a spear. This is the third time now. David was playing the lyre, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away, and escaped that night. Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michal, warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window and he fled and escaped. The rest of the text of that chapter tells us Michal's brilliant plan to uh, protect David and to keep him safe and to cover for him. The point here, friends, I'm making is that true friendship defends and protects. Jonathan takes a huge risk in standing up to Saul and to defend David. He's risking his life perhaps, but he, he's intent on protecting his friend. Again, I just want to remind us of this. Jonathan was next in line to the throne. It would have benefited him to plot evil against David, but it's not what he does. He loves this man. He's committed himself to him. He's in covenant with him, and so he wants to protect him and to guard him against harm. And Saul agrees not to kill David for now. Uh, the rest of chapter 19 up until 22 uh, documents, I think, six attempts uh, on David's life of Saul. And each time, David has to spend his life on the run. And Saul is trying to chase him down again and again. And each time, you see this mate, Jonathan, standing in the gap, protecting his friend, defending him, guarding him, doing everything he can, even putting his life on the line to protect this guy. 
Saul eventually finds out about this and it enrages him. And so chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says this, Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Right now he's bringing his wife into it. She's like, what did I do? Don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth. You and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. So the rest of those chapters describe a Saul, a king, descending into paranoia and anger. Uh, he even tries to kill his own family. Just a man unraveling because of the jealousy he has on David. I just want to ask us this morning, does that describe our relationships even just a little bit? Are there any patterns of anger or paranoia that manifest in um, maybe you secretly wanting the worst for someone or plotting to make them look bad or expose them? Are there any patterns of abuse or using someone? Any patterns of manipulation or constantly putting someone down or perfectly crafting hard words intended to stab? Or are we encouraged by the example of Jonathan, if not convicted, then maybe spurred on to have one another's backs like he has, to commit himself to protecting his mate as we commit ourselves to protecting one another, defending one another, speaking well of one another, especially when they're not around. It's a beautiful thing we're seeing here. Fourth dynamic at play in this narrative. Jonathan offers affection freely to David, while Saul withholds affection to maintain power. So the key point uh, in the story of David, he's spending his life on the run, as I said, and David seems to be at his lowest point. He's likely discouraged, uh, worn down, anxious, probably even depressed. And at this very important moment of his life, he's got a friend with him to encourage him and support him. And we just get a glimpse into this beautiful show of affection. Chapter 20, verses 41 and 42, it says this. When the servant had gone down, um, David got up from the south side of the stone, Israel fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. You see his brokenness? Jonathan then said to David, Go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring. Then David left and Jonathan went into the city. It's just such an incredible moment of affection, especially in Middle Eastern culture. It's a moment of these two friends being intimate with one another. You know, what we do, we have, especially as guys, we're guilty of this. The, the most we ever show is the two-tap. You know, that, the two-tap hug. It's, it's, it's all right, man. Okay, that's enough? All right. But what we see here is just two friends letting each other know how they feel. They're loving one another. It's just, it's such a beautiful thing. I think we struggle with this. It's maybe especially the men. We struggle to show each other affection, but even in the New Testament, Romans 12, verse 10, it tells us, show, the bro show brotherly love. Like, it's a normal part of what the church does. I mean, we don't have to kiss like them, right? We can, we can draw the line, like, somewhere. But 
brotherly love. It's a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful, beautiful gift to us. Maybe just something to consider in our friendships, in our marriages, in our relationships. Do we do what Saul does here? See what Saul does? He withholds affection in order to maintain power. So he uses his love as a kind of power play. I'm not going to show you love because I want to control you. So I'm going to withhold love until you do what I want you to do. Then maybe I'll reciprocate with some love. You see what it is? He's using it as a tool of manipulation. Do, Do you do that at all? Maybe conversely, I can ask us on the example of Jonathan, when was the last time you were affectionate in word and in action with someone you deeply love, with one of your friends, without wanting something back, just to give them that beautiful gift of friendship. It's such a beautiful gift for us to show each other love and affection freely, without pretense, without reason. The fifth thing we see in this beautiful story and the final dynamic here, it comes in chapter 23, and this is where we'll land this morning. And this is the last time we see that David and Jonathan actually see each other. It's the final moment they get to, or or glimpse we get to see into their parting words to one another. And it's a beautiful moment. Just listen to this. If you're taking notes, it's uh, chapter 23, verses 16 to 17. And let's read it together. It says this, Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Horesh, here it comes, and encouraged him in his faith in God. Oh, isn't that beautiful? So good. Saying, Don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it is true. Just those few words, Jonathan encouraged him in his faith in God. But what's the fifth dynamic we're seeing here? Jonathan strengthens David's faith. Saul seeks to obstruct his faith. Everything Saul does is about squashing David and squashing his faith in God and squashing everything that comes from that. Jonathan's entire action is about putting wind into David's sails and empowering him to follow God. See, right there, he's spending his life on the run from Saul, and he's got his mate to blow wind into his sails. And it's important for us, again, just to see that Jonathan even reminds David of the promises that would mean he never becomes king. He is that intent on encouraging and renewing David's faith in God and God's promises to him. See, we need this. We, we need one another to, to do this for us. We just can't do it on our own. Friends, whose faith are you strengthening in God? Maybe another way to ask this, a searching question for us as we consider uh, the parts of Saul in our own heart. What's the net result in terms of faith that your life has on others? What's the net result in terms of faith that your life is having on others? Do people that you spend time with grow more faithful, more joyful, more hopeful? Or are they slowly becoming more hurt, more cynical, and more jaded? Are we in any way obstructing the faith of others? Listen, it's a beautiful thing to be able to strengthen each other's faith in God. I want to encourage us just this week as we practice this thing. 
And it is a practice because it's, we're never going to be perfect. It's just making slow progress over a long time with each other, right? Whose names are we going to pray for this week? Who are we going to send an encouraging WhatsApp to say, hey, man, this is what I feel like God is saying for you. What prophetic words is God going to give us for one another? It's so important and so encouraging uh, that we can aim to encourage one another in our faith in God. But as we close, I just want to end saying this. I I think it's just uh, my hope is that um, we would all remember and realize that the essence of this message is not, Jonathan is so awesome, let's go be like Jonathan. That's not how we end this thing. The essence of this sermon isn't go be a friend like Jonathan. It's actually that you and I have a friend even better than Jonathan. And his name is Jesus. He's made us his friends. He's turned us from enemies into his friends. We have him as a king who loves us, who has purchased us, who is faithful to us day by day, who is our Jonathan, even when our friends maybe aren't as much. One who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. One who has promised us to pour out grace. One who promised us that his mercies will be new every single morning. The true and better Jonathan in King Jesus. And this morning, again, as we live this out in community, and I think we need to be convinced that it's only because Jesus befriended us that we have any power to become better friends to one another. This is what we read in, uh, just as we close, in John 15. John 15, verses 12 to 17, says this. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore, because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything I've heard from the Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. What is that fruit? This is what I command. Love one another. Encouraging this morning, even as we wade through the disappointment of failing friendships, even as we wade through uh, our own failure as friends, we, this is not about perfection, but this is about the Holy Spirit empowering us to friend one another, even while there is so much soul in our hearts. We have a friend in Jesus who gives us grace for one another. Church, let's pray together as we respond. Yeah, thank you, King Jesus, that you are our friend for those who are your children, who trust in you for forgiveness, that you have united us to yourself and you've told us you are our king and our friend. What a joy it is to know you as a friend. And I want to thank you for our friends in this room, the church, your church, this special gift, God. I want to thank you even just for myself. I have much better friends than I deserve in this place. Thank you, God for the gift of your church. Thank you for the gift of friendship to help each other pursue you back and run after you, brothers, arm in arms. God, I pray that you just help us. I pray that 
yeah, just that uh, the isolated and those who are still um, struggling and feeling disconnected or lonely uh, would find a friend firstly in you, but then in your church as well. And that there would be a beautiful sense of concern and affection and love for one another in this place. Thank you for the gift of your church. There is nothing like it. God, I want to pray for those in this room who maybe are in broken relationships. God, I pray for uh, repentance and forgiveness. I pray for reconciliation. I pray for those of us wading through um, strained friendships. I pray that you'd give us courage to reconcile, courage to seek one another out, courage to commit once again. Thank you, Jesus, that there is grace in our failures and grace in um, grace in the in the process, grace in the journey. I pray that you would once again just remind us of this gift we are to one another and can be to one another. I just pray that you'd help us figure this out as a community in Jesus' name, as we respond to you for your glory, for the worship of your name, and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Dave.